0: So we're, we're continuing in James. And so I, as we dig in, and we're only looking at two verses today, we're finishing chapter one, I want us to recap. I want to make sure we know how we're at, at this point, and what God is doing here. So we, we began a couple weeks ago, and James begins by saying that God uses trials to grow us in our faith. He then said, because of sin, we often have evil desires that tempt us when we're in trials. And then in verses 17 and 18, we saw that the way we overcome these temptations is by turning to God and reminding ourselves of the gospel. What does that look like? Uh, we, We looked at that last week in verse 22, where we see that we're to regularly read and obey God's word. And it's through the obedience to God's word that we persevere in our Christian faith and we overcome trials and temptations. But what does it look like to obey God's word? Are there certain things that we're actually called to do? Are there things that that as a church that are to characterize us? Are there things that, that God has told us that you individually, me individually, that we're to be practicing and doing each and every day? And that's what James is going to do today. He's kind of, uh, he's, he's giving us the outline for the rest of the book. James is going to help us to see what it looks like to live out our faith. Or, or to say it another way, James is going to paint a picture of what it looks like for our faith to be visible. And as Christians, I, I think we know that our faith is supposed to be visible. Many of us were familiar with passages like Matthew five fourteen. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Like I think most of us know those kind of things. That we're to be lights in this world. Philippians two fifteen. You may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and tr- twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we are to live distinct lives from this world. I think we talk about that quite a bit here within the church. If you read the Bible, we see that regularly. God has saved us that we would live for him. Our lives are meant to give a testimony of our love for Jesus. We're never, ever given a picture in God's word where our faith is called to be invisible. It does not exist. Biblical faith in Jesus Christ is visible faith. In our text today, James is, he's not going to give us a a comprehensive list, but he's going to give us three ways that our faith is to be visible. So first we're going to look at the necessity of visible faith, then we're going to look at the description of visible faith, and then we're going to kind of step back and look at the big picture of God's word and see what the purpose of visible faith is. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to stand at this moment. Uh, One thing we do here is we stand at the reading of God's word. This word comes from God. It is inspired by the Spirit that we would be strengthened, that we would be built up in our faith, that we would be equipped for all that God has called us to do. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom today. Help us to understand this passage of Scripture. And God, may your Spirit through your Word free us from any bondage of sin that we're in. God, help us to understand faith. Help us to know that as we trust in you, as we we declare our belief in you, that that results in a transformed life. God, may your spirit convict us of sin. May your spirit guide us into truth. May we be a church that is concerned with personal purity and practical compassion. God, may our lives be governed by your word more than the winds of this culture. God, speak to us today. Give us discernment. And Lord, may we be challenged, convicted, and changed. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. We're going to start with just the necessity of visible faith. Verse 26, we read the word deceive. Now, uh, if you've been reading with us, and you know that this is not the first time that James has used this word. In fact, this is the third time James uses the word deceive in chapter 1. First time, verse 16, he says, Don't be deceived by the source of temptation. It's not out there. It's right here. It's in your heart. Verse 22, he says, Don't be deceived that you can read the Bible and not obey the Bible. To read the Bible is to obey the Bible. That's what it is, to read it by faith. And now he is saying, don't be deceived thinking that you're religious if you're really not. Now, last week we defined the word deceived, and so um, I want to repeat that definition. To be deceived means to be blinded to the reality of one's religious state. That's how James uses it. James is saying you can think something is true... About yourself but in reality it's not in verse 26 james is literally saying if your words are not affected by your faith in jesus then you're not saved now you might think you are but he's saying you'd be deceived in that kind of thinking and to further explain james says that religion that does not transform how you speak he says is is worthless it's good for nothing and I don't think we need to limit James's word to just verse 26, but rather uh, it encapsulates everything he's saying in verses 26 and 27. In verse 27 he says, pure and undefiled religion is taking care of orphans and widows and practicing holiness. That's basically what he's saying. Therefore a religion, and when, and when James uses religion, he means faith in Jesus, therefore a religion, or faith in Jesus, that does not care for orphans and widows and practice holiness is not pure meaning it's not real faith meaning it would be some type of counterfeit faith and thus to think that it's faith is to be deceived so james is saying if you say you're religious if you say you have faith in jesus and yet it doesn't affect your words it doesn't affect how you care for orphans and widows it doesn't affect your personal purity you're not saved so we need to pause for a moment and just digest what James is giving what James is giving us cuz what he's saying is true faith produces practical practical compassion and personal purity and if our faith is not doing these things producing this practical compassion that's working out in the way we care for orphans and widows, and really the vulnerable, those who are outcasts in society. And if it's not working and developing in us a personal piety towards Jesus, uh, that we'd be more devoted to Christ and changing the way that we live. Then he says that we're being deceived if we think that we're saved. See, James is is wanting us to ask the question, am I being deceived? Do I think that I'm religious? Meaning, do do I think that I have faith in Jesus, but in reality, I do not. See, God's Word, we need to realize, when we come to it, it's meant to guide us. It's meant to comfort us. It's meant to shepherd us. And we love the, those kind of ways that it, that it guides us and comforts us and helps us, right? I mean, when we open up the Bible and, and we see the beauties of God's grace for us in Jesus, I mean, we, we just shout out amen when we see the character of God and that he's omnipresent as, as Chris preached, or we see that he's immutable, meaning he's unchanging. We go, man, that is good. But God's word is also meant to confront us. It's meant to confront us and make us ask hard questions we would look at ourselves and say, am I living the way God has called me to? And so that's what James is doing here at this moment. Because here's the problem. Because of sin, we often limit what we think religion is or, or what real faith in Jesus looks like. And we limit it to maybe what happens on a Sunday morning for one or two hours a week. Or are we limited to what happens 10 or 15 or 20 minutes um, a day when we have our, our personal quiet time? And hopefully it's, it's longer than that at times. And in fact, we see that in the Bible, God's people um, regularly are limiting what it means to be religious, what it means to have faith in God. And in fact, I want to read just a little bit from Isaiah. In Isaiah, God is going to send his people, Israel, into exile because they've been disobedient. Because they haven't been living the way that he's called them to. So let me read a couple verses. And we're just going to get a glimpse of their sin. He says this in verse 10 and verse 11 of chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me... Is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Just so you need, like think through this. God calls His people Israel, the people who live in Jerusalem, those who live in the Promised Land, and He says, "Your Sodom and your Gomorrah." Now, what have they done to receive this, this heinous description in title? Well, if, if we look, they've done a lot of sacrifices which God has called them to do. Later in the chapter, if we're actually to, to kind of unpack all of chapter one, we'd see that they observe religious holidays and feasts and all the festivals that God has told them to do. And, and we'd see that they spread their hands out in worship, something that we Baptists don't really understand. You know, they, they move during worship, and, and he says that they pray to God. So let me translate this now into first century, uh, or not first century, into 21st century, where we're at. They attend church every Sunday. They give faithful, faithfully. They observe Christmas and Easter, and they hate the fact that culture has tried to remove God from these religious holidays. They look like really good church people. They're the ones who during the worship, man, you can just see that they're just moved to tears and they're just expressing joy. They give powerful prayers. I mean, these are people we're going, this is like a good deacon candidate, maybe even an elder candidate. So what's wrong? Why is it that God calls them Sodom? Why is it God describes them as Gomorrah? Well, to answer that, we'd go a little bit further in the chapter. Look at verse 16 and 17. This is what God says through Isaiah, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So what's the problem here? They've not practiced holiness. They don't serve the orphan and the widow. They're not concerned about justice and making sure everyone's treated fairly. Rather, injustice is taking place. See, their faith was very limited to, to religious practices like these sacrifices, these feasts, gathering on a Sunday morning, making sure we show up to prayer meeting. And again, all those things are good, right? Like We're not saying, don't come on Sunday mornings, don't do Bible studies, don't raise your hands. Like We're not saying, don't do any of those things. We ought to do those things. But they limited religion and faith in Jesus to attendance, to, to just Bible reading plans, which, which are great. I love Bible reading plans. But they're void of any personal purity and practical compassion. See, our faith is meant to transform everything That we do every aspect of our life 24 7 not just two hours on Sunday now culture today will say keep your faith to yourself you can practice it at home but don't bring it in the workplace don't bring it out don't bring it out into the square just keep it at home now that is a ridiculous ignorant and I mean we can just be clear right just flat-out stupid statement like right i mean just when we know what god's word says about faith it's just stupid because god says that when we come to know christ what happens we become new creations we go from life to death all that we do every relationship our hobbies our work how we spend our money how we think about sex and gender in marriage how we think of politics all of this is affected by our faith how we do parenting how we do marriage just every aspect of our life is affected by our faith so to say keep it at home that's impossible when god's spirit now lives within us that we would live a brand new way everywhere that we are we can't leave our religion at home and yet that's exactly what israel was doing in chapter one or in chapter one of isaiah that they're being charged against and that's what james is addressing here to the church because remember he's writing to a church and he's wanting to make sure that we're not being deceived. Our faith must be visible. So let's look at um, the three ways that James specifically says that our faith is to be visible. Now, again, uh, the rest of the book is going to unpack these three topics. So we're going to dive into them a little bit, but we're going to roughly say it about 20,000 feet. And then we're going to dive much more into them over the next few weeks because the entire book of James is going to unpack this sermon in much greater detail. So let's start off. The description of visible faith. Number one, we see that we are to be speaking in love. Verse 26, James says, Our faith in Jesus affects how we speak. James uses the imagery of a bridle. Basically, he's saying our tongues are not to be a wild horse running wherever it wants, but it's to be bridled. It's to be controlled. In chapter 3, James is going to compare our tongues to a small spark that starts an entire forest fire or a small rudder that can control a giant boat. And his point is is that our words are not bridled and carefully thought about. They can be used for great destruction. The, The small instrument of our tongue has a powerful effect on other people in the way we live. And all throughout the Bible, we see... That God is calling us to think about how we speak. In fact, the book of Proverbs may give us the most information about that. And in fact, Proverbs says, oftentimes it's just good to be quiet. Like, if you realize that, like sometimes just just don't talk. Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. You can be an idiot, but if you don't talk, nobody's going to know. Like, that's hope for some of us, right? Most of us. Like, man, if I'm just quiet. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Like, when we tell our kids to play the quiet game, it's for sanctification, right? And sometimes we need to play the quiet game with ourselves. So let me just ask. are Are you quick to anger? Anger is often seen in raised voices what my wife says you're speaking loud I'm not not loud (laughs) you ever feel like that like no I'm not I'm not angry as we yell do you speak when you should remain quiet are you guilty in participating in gossip are you careful with your words you see oftentimes what we do is we excuse our words right well we say well they said this therefore it was okay for me to say this Well, they yelled first, therefore it's okay for me. See, often what we try to do is say, it's okay, and we're just explaining away the reactionary aspect of our words. I can do whatever I want if I'm simply reacting to you. And yet, that's what James is saying. Are you bridling that tongue? Are you bringing it back so we're not just reacting to situations around us? Luke 6, Jesus tells us why our words are so important i so I want to read this in Luke 6.45. I think it's up here on the screen. He says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Do you see what he's doing here? Jesus is saying that our words reflect our hearts. What's in our hearts is what comes out of our mouths your speech is a window into the reality of the depths of your heart so let me ask you what what do your words say about your heart it's a question i think we need to ask ourselves regularly like what do they say how do we gauge our, our spiritual health based upon what we've said so if wickedness comes out of our mouths it's because wickedness is in our hearts if we gossip it's because there's sin within us when we lash out in anger it's because there's sin within us but but we need to remember because of the gospel we've been given new hearts the spirit is now at work in us that we would what that we would love one another that the remember the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness faithfulness what's the last one it's the bridling it's the self-control you see why james says that we're deceived if we think we're religious and yet our speech is not transformed we have new hearts now this is not meaning that we don't ever struggle with our speech anymore i know that i do and if we're all honest we all struggle with anger we also sometimes with being reactive and just lashing out like we struggle with that right we struggle with our words being seasoned with grace And yet, as we grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, our words are to be increasingly seasoned with grace. They're to increasingly become more like that of how Jesus used his words. That's number one. Our words are to be transformed. Number two, we're to be serving others. Verse 27, James says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now the words pure and undefiled mean clean, mean without stain, so James is saying that when we care for orphans and we care for religion, or care for and care for orphans and widows, we're we're demonstrating a pure heart. We're showing really the heart and the character of God and Jesus Christ. You see, it's interesting, if you actually go back into the Old Testament, you see that Israel was called to constantly be on lookout for the orphan, the widow, the alien, the sojourner, the outcast. In fact, the way Israel was to live was so that there would be no poor person among them. Did you know that? that there would be no needs, because all the needs are being met within, the, within Israel. And in a sense, that's how we function. That's why we even take a benevolence offering. If there's a need and you have it, we want to meet that. Because we believe that we have that responsibility with one another. We're family and we want to love one another and meet whatever needs that we might have. In fact, when they would harvest the vineyards and they would go and and gather the grapes and gather all the food, they're told that they're not to strip them bare, but they're to leave food on the vineyards so that the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner would be able to do what? would come and they would pick the food for free. They didn't plant it. They didn't work it. And yet they're, they're giving it to them as a way of loving them, as a way of providing for them. In fact, God loves the orphans and widows so much we read passages like this. Psalm 68 verse 5. This is a description of God. He says, He is the father of the fatherless. Protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. Did you know that? That's how God describes Himself. I am the father of fathers protector of widows psalm 146.9 says the lord watches over the sojourners he upholds the widow and the fatherless but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin god loves those who are cast out he loves those who are on the fringe of society he loves those who are vulnerable and need protection There is nowhere in the Bible do we see that Christians are to be known for their might and their power. Rather, we're to be known how we love and we serve one another. As we serve others, we're showing them the love of our King, of Jesus. This is why John, this is what he writes in in 1 John 3.16. Not John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Do you you see what he's saying? If you see a fellow brother in Christ, and they have a need, and you don't do something about it, how can you dare call yourself a Christian? it's like josh is hitting it james is hitting it and it's not the point the point here is not that they're trying to hit us over the head their point is they're showing the reality of our faith they're showing what jesus does as he transforms our heart and the spirit now lives within us so a question we need to ask ourselves is how am i serving the orphan and the widow the poor the vulnerable those who are outcast how am i serving those who are in great need am i only spending time with those who look like me or am i placing myself in situations where i'm faced with great needs how am i loving others like jesus did and i think what we typically do here if we're not careful we can just use excuses and we can say i'm just not really aware of a way that i can do it you know i'm not really around those kind of people right i mean like like those are things that we say and yet Today in the 21st century, with the amount of technology we have, we can probably find a need pretty easy, right? Like you can jump on the internet and you can find needs in Thurston County and needs around the world within seconds. And so we we can support financially, we can support in prayer. There's physical ways that we, we can help. Many of our people here, we're engaged in various ways to help within the city helping just your own neighbors. Um, We have a sign-up, and I was told last week, we need people for next week. Soup kitchen. Soup kitchen meets downtown um, at one of the churches, and they come alongside to simply serve the poor. Simply a way to serve one another. These are all things, these are questions that we must wrestle with. We must fight the temptation to give ourselves an excuse because what James is saying is that we're to be intentional here and if we're passive here we're always going to have a reason why we don't find a way right if like we can always find a reason and I, I throw myself in there I, I, man I look back and even walking through the sermon going man how have I been doing this what are ways that I have done how can I grow in this what are ways that I haven't been as active and one of the one of it is man if we don't keep it central and be intentional then it quickly moves to the peripheral, and all of a sudden we can go six months, a year, and go, Man, I haven't really been involved in meeting physical needs for a while. And let's be real, when this happens, what's going to happen? Life's going to get messy. Things are going to become inconvenient. But I want you to think, who are we? Who are we? We're the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. He has saved us. So you and I, together and individually, we would show this world the love of Jesus. So how did Jesus show His love? He left the throne room. He left all the comforts of the throne room. He closed Himself in humanity, and He comes into the muck and the mire of this world. So He'd do what? He'd hang out with the lepers. He'd hang out with the prostitutes, the poor, the naked, Blind, the demon possessed. And he hangs out with them, redeems them. Who did he pick for apostles? The fisherman, the tax collector. These guys, no one else is picking. And these are exactly the people that Jesus goes and he grabs and he pulls them next to him. And he disciples them and he teaches them. And ultimately, he goes to the cross to show his love and his grace. And when does he do it? When we're his friends? No, Romans 5 8, when we're his enemies. That's when Jesus goes. He's not going when we're on his team, when we're, when we're saying, Jesus, we're with you. Just, just give us a hand. Die for us on the cross. No, it's when we hate him, when we reject him, when we're very much uh, symbolically right there with the Roman centurions nailing the nails into Jesus' hands. Because of our sin, we're all guilty of that. And yet it's at that moment that Jesus comes and he says, that's how I come to serve you. That's how I come to love you. And now, that's how we come and we show the love of Christ in this world. As we serve the orphan, the widow, the poor, the neglected, the outcast, we are showing the world the love of our King, Jesus. That's number two. Number three, we're to be practicing holiness. Look at the end of verse 27. He says, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be unstained from the world? One commentator said, the world is a common biblical way of referring to the ungodly worldview and lifestyle that characterizes human life in its estrangement and its separation from the creator. So the world, using the word world, is a common way just to refer to the culture of this world, the kingdom of this world opposed to the kingdom of God. And so to keep ourselves unstained or spotless and remain free from the world's contaminating influence is that's what it means to, to pursue holiness. In chapter 4, James is going to pick up this topic. In chapter 4, verse 4, this is what he said. Now, now think, he's talking to the church. So remember, God's word, it comes to encourage us, it comes to correct us, it comes to train us. You know, good things. We like those things, right? I love those days. Open up the Bible. and Man, good things. And it comes to confront. So this is how James 4.4 4 starts. To the church, you adulterous people. It comes to confront. we got to realize that. It says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God. what happened is the church was looking a little cozy with the world it was getting hard to to distinguish the church from the world they just they all kind of looked alike the way they lived the way they acted the movies that they saw the way they talked who they hung out with i couldn't really tell the difference between the world and the church that's what james is saying now if you're a mom or a dad then you're going to understand this really well and i don't think it's much of a stretch if you're not one of those Um, When you have kids, you know what it is to then have stains on your clothes, don't you? It's not uncommon that once we have the baby, we we have this drool thing, just like permanently. Like, I mean, it doesn't even matter with those drool rags. Like the kid misses that like 100% of the time, right? And it's just the drool is on us. Or, you know, as soon as you get done feeding and burping and everything is good, you put them on you and then they're spit up all down your shirt right or when the kids get a little bit older and they're just having a whole bunch of fun they go outside they come in and where do their hands directly go to your pants and women you wear white pants and that's that's really you know we could we could talk about the wisdom of that because once you have kids you know where do those hands go every day you wear white pants right right here right and what do we do as parents like like in the beginning of parenting, like we're like, oh man, I gotta scrub this or I gotta change my shirt. But by like day two of parenting, we're like, forget it. Like the stains are a normal part of life, right? It's just going to happen. I'm going to have drool. Like this cleanliness as a parent, especially when you got toddlers, just not going to happen, and we're just okay with that. We realize, and when people say anything, we don't even care, right? I got I got kids. I got a two-year-old, and then everyone just goes, oh, yep. I understand. I mean, we, we, we get that, right? Unfortunately, we can equate the stains of this world just to messy handprints. No big deal. Just a way of life. And we think that when we just start looking like the world and all of it's honest, we just, well, you know, this is just the people I work with. This is my neighborhood. This is just how I grew up. This is just how my family talks. This is just the movies that we watch. But God has saved us to be holy, meaning that our lives are to be devoted to him. He saved us that our lives would glorify him. Our faith is to affect the way we think about LGBTQ+, that just means everything else along those lines, is to affect the way we think about our kids' sports and how they're involved, is to affect the TV shows and the websites that we look at. Our faith is to transform the way we interact and the way we treat our families, our friends, our co-workers, it's to affect how we spend our money, how we're entertained, how we, how we do our plans, how we set our vacationing. It affects all of those kinds of things. And so what, what often we do is we kind of think, okay, r- our faith is going to affect these things, but, but then I got this over here. And, and I can just kind of do whatever I want over here in this corner of my life. But Jesus has said, no, I come, that you would have a new life and that everything you do would be new. And that everything that you do would be for the very glory of God. So that means that there's going to be some things that we've done that we're just not going to do anymore. There's going to be some things that we do before we were saved that now that we're saved, and now we do them with greater purpose. We knew them with a new purpose for the glory of God. Hear this, real faith, faith that is pure and undefiled, produces personal purity, practical compassion. Real faith is tangible faith. It has to be seen. And I love how Jeff, even as he shared up here in the Apostles' Creed, he hits that, okay, our actions, they don't save other people. It's our words that communicate the gospel. But then again, we we must not throw out the actions because the actions are a necessary part of what it is to be a Christian, right? We see that with this new heart, a new life now comes. And so let's look at the purpose of visible faith. This is where we're going to step out a little bit. Let's step back. In the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, John the Baptist is arrested by Herod. Many of you know the story. He's sitting in jail. And in chapter 7, verse 19, uh, you guys can go back and read all of chapter 7 later. I encourage you to do that. Uh, he, he sends Jesus a question from jail. And the question is, are you the one is to come, or should we look for another? His whole point is, is, okay, if you're the Messiah and, and you're the one who has come to, to save Israel and to make all things new and bring forth the kingdom, um, why am I in jail? He's trying to figure things out. And so in verse 22, Jesus is going to give the response to the messengers that John has sent. This is what he says. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised up the poor have good news preached to them and notice what what jesus doesn't just do he just doesn't say um did you not just hear me preach of course i'm the messiah I've been preaching since day one. Have you not been listening? Like he doesn't go there, although yet he does say that he's preached. But he says, I've preached. And then he gives this description of all these good works that he's done. Now, why is this important? So let, let's, let's make sure we understand the preaching, the teaching, the speaking first. The only way people are saved is by the gospel being preached. That is the only way people are saved. It's through the proclamation of the gospel. Good works are unable to communicate the truths of the gospel. Like, there's no amount of feeding the homeless that communicates that Jesus is the Son of God who came down from heaven to earth to live, die on a cross, and then raise again three days later for your sins. Your works will not communicate that. You can feed a thousand people a day, and they will all go to hell if you don't share them the gospel. We get that? Like, like we have to speak the gospel. And that's what Jeff was bringing forward to her. Like, we must verbally proclaim, which is why we go over the Apostles' Creed every week. We're training ourselves. This is the gospel that saves us. We're speaking it to one another so that when we leave this room, we can speak it to anyone else. Okay, so that's the importance of words. We must never be silent with the gospel. But... We have to understand, Jesus didn't just come so we'd be forgiven of our sins, though, did he? Jesus came for, actually, quite a bit more. He came to bring forth the kingdom of God. He came so that his rule would break forth into this world, and we would see the effects of sin being undone. This is why he said, the blind can see, the lame walk, the lepers are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The miracles and healings of Jesus show us what the kingdom of God is like. Are a picture of it the kingdom of God is a place where God's people experience joy and blessing and are free from sin the kingdom of God is a place where we love and serve one another and where we continually put the needs of others before our own the kingdom of God is a place where our words are seasoned with grace we are gentle and compassionate with others we speak with love and tenderness our words bring healing and, and unity and not division The kingdom of God is a place where everything that we do is devoted to the very glory of God. That's the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus ushered in. And Jesus, we're told in Colossians chapter 1, is now sitting right now, at the right hand of the Father on the throne, reconciling all things to himself. What does all things mean? It means everything in creation. And What does it mean to reconcile? Bring it into a right relationship with him. Now, how does that happen? It happens through the church. It happens through us. Hear this. As we bridle our tongues and speak in love, we're showing the world the kingdom of God. As we serve the poor, the orphan, the widow, we reveal the kingdom of God. As we practice holiness and strive to reveal the love of Christ and all that we do, we're showing the kingdom of God. Remember, we are the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. All that we do is to point people to our king, point people to Jesus. All of our actions, our lives, our works, our words, they're all meant to point people to the king. Our lives are to be living testimony of God's grace. Hear this, you We, we're a billboard for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're a billboard for the kingdom. Do you know that? That's who we are. We have been saved to display the truth of their kingdom. And when our faith is visible, God's kingdom is visible. When our faith is visible, God's kingdom is visible. Now remember, God's kingdom is spread through proclamation. But God's kingdom is made visible through our through our words and our actions right goes forward through the proclamation of the gospel it's made visible by our lifestyle so where do we start how do we what's the next step then well i'd say we'd go back to verses 17 and 18. Remember, we looked at these a couple weeks ago. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow. Due to change of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits and creatures. And what we said there is what James is doing. He's directing us to who God is and what he has done through Jesus Christ. So the first thing that we need to do is to come back and know who God is. And so, so how do we do all this? So if you've been here for really any period of time, you know that um, I'm very much against any type of step method. Like, you know, let me give you six steps to better marriage, six steps to, you know, better parenting. Like, we just don't do that ever, right? Like, because we, we don't believe that just outward change and those kind of things is the way we, we, we focus on things. But we see that it's always going about to the gospel. But I'm going to give you three steps today to say all that. We never do that. Here's three steps. But I think these steps are are pretty in line with what James is saying, so I feel very confident on biblical grounds on giving these steps. Number one, read the Bible. James tells us that we need to know who the Father is, know who our God is, and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. How is it that we do that? This is our interactive time. Go ahead, I've already given you the answer. Read the Bible. See, you could say that with confidence. I just gave it to you. There's no way you get that wrong unless you say something other than read the Bible. So we read the Bible. We grow in our knowledge of God, his love, his grace, his might, his power. We grow in in what, what what Chris was... With that guy, that guy right there, what he preached, I can't even talk, with what Chris preached a couple weeks ago, the omnipresence of God from Jeremiah 21, yeah, 23, it's in the 20s. We, we grow in our knowledge of the omnipresence. We grow in our knowledge of the immutability of God. Remember that one? We used that one a couple weeks ago. The fact that God doesn't change. And remember Remember the good news of that? If God is omnipresent because he's immutable, he'll always be omnipresent. He doesn't change. If God said that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, guess what? There's going to be no trick at the end where he says, oh, guess what? That didn't work. If God says he's patient, he's kind, and he's steadfast in his love and grace, guess what? He's immutable. He'll always be those things. If God says you will never be alone, but I will always be with you, guess what? He is immutable. He will always be those things. So we come to the Bible, and we grow in our knowledge of who God is, of his character, of how he has worked. That's what the Bible does. It explains to us, who God is and then it shows us how he's loved us how he's revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ coming and dying on a cross so number one we just have to dig into the word if we're going to be able to live out these truths number two we obey the bible verse 22 go back to verse 22 this is the other time that he used the word deceive he says but be doers of the word not here's only, deceiving yourself. So he's calling us, know the word. Secondly, do the word. This is, this is where my step method, see? It's, it's pretty simple, trying to keep it right along biblical lines. We, we know God, we obey God. And what do you think is going to happen when we begin living out the truths of God's word from an understanding of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus? What do you think is going to happen? I think 1 Peter 3.15 is going to happen. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Why is it people are going to ask you about the hope that you have? Because you're living with that hope. Your lives are a testimony of that hope. The way you interact, the way you do relationships, the way you do finances, the way you do parenting, the way you do all things in your life. People are just going to see a hope. The way you go through trials, the way you face temptations, the way you go through heartache, the way we go through pain, the way we experience death. All of that. There's this hope that just undergirds all of it and that the world is going to see it. And when we live according to God's word, they're going to say, why do you live that way? How do you live that way? People will only ask us about our faith when we have visible faith. And they will only want to know about our king when our lifestyle reveals the kingdom. So many people say, man, I I just never have anyone ask me about my faith. Man, 1 Peter 3.15 is like this anomaly. Like, I, I don't even know why it's in the Bible. Did it ever happen? And yet I think that needs to make us question, how am I living? Have I limited what faith in is Jesus to just a few hours a day? To a few hours a week? Or is it really permeating my entire lifestyle? Let us not be deceived. I I think I I told you this story once before and it seemed applicable, so I'll I'll tell it again. I was was at Cutter's coffee shop. I'm at Cutter's a lot, I I, I give Cutter's a lot of business. Um, I drink a lot of coffee there. Uh, At all of them, I don't show favoritism. I go to all the coffee, all the Cutters coffee shops, so um, I know just about everyone that works at all of them. Um, I get to know a lot of the people who work there. I get to know a lot of the regulars, and uh, so there was, there was one time a guy who comes in, and and he's sitting next to me. He's got the newspaper out. I, I actually don't remember now who struck up the conversation. It very well could be me because I'm, I'm just kind of one of those people if you sit next to I'll try to figure out, hey, what you're reading? You know, just throw something out there and see if it sticks. But he could have, he could have asked me. Um, so anyways, this conversation starts. He then says, what are you doing? And I say, well, I'm, I'm writing a sermon. He says, oh, what are you writing about? So we, we start doing, you know, just that conversation, and, which is great because that just kind of throws the ball up. It's really hard to miss on that one. You know, he's asking me, what are you writing? So I get some of your conversations are not this easy. Like, I get that but if you go to cutters with a bible and write a bible study someone might ask you what you're writing and so he says what are you writing what's the sermon on so i tell him and then i follow up with the do you believe in god it's it's right there like it's i get it it, it's, it's served up so i ask him and he says no i'm agnostic so i go okay i i say so so what are you in between like where are you at with that? Like, how what are you struggling with God and the world? Like, like where, where are you at between those two things? Do you want to talk about it? And so his response is: well, I think religion is dumb, and anyone who believes in God is just a crux for weak people. I don't really believe in any God. So I, I know what agnosticism is, and this has no, no description of a of, of agnosticism with it. So I turned to him and I'm trying to be as nice as I can, but I say, you know, that doesn't really sound like agnosticism, but it sounds like you're an atheist. Uh, And and I said, if that's true, you you should just tell people you're an atheist. I was trying to be as lighthearted about it, you know, but just trying to point it out. And you know, he turns to me and goes, yeah, I guess you're right. Um, But he was just deceiving himself behind the words agnosticism, because I think it feels better. You know, it, it's, it sounds better than, you know, I've made up my mind, I'm an atheist. No, I'm just agnostic. It, it, we kind of feel like that's a neutral ground, you know, at, at that moment. Uh, that life is just okay right there. Well, God will probably let me in if I just say I'm agnostic. But I think in the same way, James is addressing us today, and he's saying, let's not be deceived. He's trying to give us a clear understanding of what scripture is, uh, of, of what real faith is. He wants us to understand that as we obey the word, this is this is the type of lifestyle that's going to be produced if it doesn't produce this we should wrestle with questions on why is it not you see jesus died on the cross so we'd be made new he saved us and given us his spirit so we'd live like jesus practical compassion personal purity it's not something that we muster up from within that like we're we're trying to create it's something that the spirit's already working within us so step three we pray. Step one, read the Bible. Step two, obey it. Step three, let's just pray. So our response to like verses 26 and 27, I think should largely be, God, help, help me to bridle my tongue. Help me to be even more devoted to serving the orphan, the widow. Help me to be aware of any, any stain that I have in my, my life. See, what we're doing is we're just taking God's Word and letting it shape our prayer at this moment. And we're saying, well, if this is what God is calling me to do, if this is how His Spirit is working, let's just pray along these lines, because you can be 100% confident. If you pray in accordance with Scripture, that is God's will for you. So God's will for every single one of us here is that we all grow in how we bridle our tongue, on how we serve the poor, the orphan, the widow." and how we live holy lives. That is God's desire for us. That is what the Spirit is doing in each of us. So let's pray along these lines. And I wanna encourage you, if, if you feel like as we go through here that there's a part that just rubs on one of these and you're just going, man, I don't do that. Just go ahead and repent where you're at. There's no point to try to hide behind it. Don't deceive yourself. Let, let's not start playing the, the, uh, the excuse game. Well, I haven't done that because of this, this. No, let's just, let's just bring out. We can either do sins of commission Or omission. And we might just all have just done the sin of omission here where we haven't been practicing what God has called us to do. And so we might need to just do repentance. Now maybe you are, you're wrestling with things and you're just saying, God, increase the fire within me. Man, that's an awesome prayer too. Now you might be sitting here also and when we go through these things, you're sitting there going, I really struggle with my tongue. I don't do that well at all. I never really help orphans and widows. And my life probably doesn't look any different than any any unbeliever. I'd say just be real at this moment. And if you might not be a believer, confess for the first time in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess him. Confess him and repent of living for yourself. And confess that he is Jesus Christ, the Lord, our King, the one who has died and forgiven us, that we would have new life. And then know that the Spirit has given to you that this is then how you would begin to live. So I just encourage you, let us read the Bible. Let's do what it says. And let our prayers be in accord with the Bible. We're going we're gonna to pray now, and, and we're going to let this shape our prayer here. And then we're going to come to the time of communion. And we're going to come and we're going to turn as a time of remembering of, of what God has done for us so that these verses, 26 and 27, would be a reality within our very lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And first, Father, we, just, we thank you for the grace you've given us in your Son. We thank you that you have given us grace extravagantly. That God, it is when we were sinners that you loved us. It is when we were sinners and we hated you, we rejected you, we were in rebellion against you, that that's when your son came and died on the cross. And Lord, we know that by your grace, you have made us new. And so Lord, I pray that our lives would be a testimony of your grace. I pray that we would be a church that is concerned with the lost, be concerned with the orphan, the widow, that we'd be concerned with how we speak, that we'd be concerned with the vulnerable and those who are cast to the fringes of society. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in us, that we'd be concerned more about the comfort of others than our own comfort, that we would live holy lives, that we'd be concerned and devoted about making sure that you are glorified in all of our words and all of our actions and our lifestyles at home and in public. God, help us to be unstained from this world. Lord, and I pray if there are areas that we have stains on us, let us not rationalize, let us not give excuses, but Lord, I just pray, convict us. Convict us of any sins of commission or omission. Lord, help us to confess them. Bring to our attention anything that we need to. And God, may we be a church that has real, visible faith. May our words and our actions be conformed to the character of your son, Jesus Christ. In your name, amen.